Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hey everyone, today's guest is Justin Curry, bassist and lead vocalist for the Glasgow Scotland alternative rock band, Delamitri. Together we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the smash hit, Roll To Me, taken from their 1995 album, Twisted. Justin mentioned that this song was a bit of a curveball for Delamitri, and was viewed almost as a throwaway song. It was very different from the rest of the tunes from the same album and clocked in at only 2 minutes and 12 seconds, whereas the rest of the tracks were significantly longer. It wasn't until he played his girlfriend at the time some demos, and she singled out Roll To Me as the standout track, that Justin thought maybe there was more to this than just a throwaway song. The band had already put together a large following in the UK, and had several hit singles by the time Roll To Me was released, finally breaking big into the US market with the song. I told Justin this song is one of the catchiest earworms that you just can't get out of your head. For all this and a lesson in recording your vocals next to an airfield, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Hey, Justin, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Chris? I am great. This is an absolute pleasure to be talking to you. You know, I, <laughs> I've i done a crash course in Delamitri the past couple of days, and to say that I'm impressed with your story, it would be an understatement. And, and, and what a story it is. I had no idea the history of this band, and I'd, I'd like to kind of talk about that a little bit. You know, you obviously had the smash hit uh, Roll to Me, which is the song we're going to talk about today, yeah. and I say smash hit in the United states but you know you guys are from glasgow you were formed in 1980 and in total you have seven albums five of those albums have reached the top 10 in the uk and globally the band has sold over six million albums and you know there's not many bands that i can think of that started in 1980 with relative obscurity in the States that 15 years later have this massive hit. So congrats with that. And your history is just, it's kind of crazy here. You know, your first record came out, the self-titled album in 85. Yeah. And then your next record didn't come out till 89, then 92, and then 95, Twisted came out that features Roll to me. But that's a pretty big gap between records. What was happening there? Because between 85 and 89, the landscape of music, as you know, completely changed. And again, from 89 to 92, it went through another evolution. So it's really cool that you weathered all those different uh, eras. What happened to us was we started out as a kind of post-punk uh, I mean, I suppose what you would call in the UK an indie band, uh, which meant we were directly influenced by punk, but we were too young to have been part of the first wave of punk. 
So really, the stuff we grew up listening to is what you call post-punk. So things like The Fall and Joy Division, Gang of Four, a lot of bands from Manchester. Uh, so, But then what happened was, at the beginning of the 80s, there was a kind of revolution in Glasgow around this independent label called Postcard. And there were th- three really significant groups for that had a huge influence on Scottish musicians, Aztec Camera, Orange Juice and Joseph Kay, all of whom did their own kind of weird version of, of post-punk guitar music. Very melodic, very clean-sounding guitars. It was kind of like a direct reaction to some of the sort of miserabilism that was going on after punk and during post-punk. So Postcard was an extremely hip label, and the bands on the label were extremely hip. And Glasgow had never been a cool town, so that, that sent thousands of us flooding out of our, our school classrooms into rehearsal rooms and and forming <laughs> forming bands because they, they kind of showed the way and they were getting national coverage and you know the, the the weekly music papers in the UK and that was a really big deal for us so that's what we were we, we were a, a, a post-punk post postcard style band but then what happened later on is after the first uh, the self-titled record came out in 85. Uh, we started writing slightly different kind of songs that were a bit more Americana in style. Uh, and then we went to America with, with absolutely no money and slept in fans' houses and on their parents' floors and slept on picnic benches. And that was such a, a formative experience that it completely changed who we were. So we came back and we started writing kind of like blues and folk songs. We started writing very mainstream sounding songs, which is not where we'd come from at all. And at that point, we thought, well, what the fuck are we going to do about this? Because we're going to lose all of our previous audience uh, and we're writing these things that sort of sound like pop songs. So eventually we decided, well, if we're writing pop songs, we should probably be, we should probably go back and try and sign to another major label and try and be a pop band because we don't sound like an indie band anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, effectively what happened to us was we went to America in 1986. And as I say, you know, we didn't have a, we didn't have a record company. We didn't have an agent. We just, uh, our manager at the time, Barbara Shores, had just um, written to fans that had written to us through the fan club and asked them if they'd put a gig on for us. And we just flew over there and stayed in people's houses. It was, it was completely right. pretty, pretty mad, you know. That just had a real, that really permeated our kind of, it, partly because these kids that we were meeting were into really different things from from like kind of trendy post-punk music they were into quite mainstream music that allowed us to kind of relax about what our, our influences were so it was you know if one of your songs sounded like tom petty that was okay whereas in the early 80s you'd have thrown that song out because it was too mainstream right yeah and i'm glad you said the term americana i would never want to insult a band from glasgow by saying but that's what the sound kind of reminded me of where it went from the first record i could i could really hear your accent on the first record it sounded okay these guys are definitely from from the uk or glasgow but uh the later stuff as you said it was a little more kind of jangly pop i'll tell you i did not know your song from uh your third record change everything the song always the last to know yeah so i'm researching the band and that came on i'm telling you rock 104 in gainesville florida yeah. where my band is from where i went to uni uh they played the heck out of that song by the chorus i'm singing the song going oh my gosh i haven't heard this in almost 30 years what a fantastic track I'm the last to know the last to know how you're feeling the last to know 
Well, that that was a kind of minor hit as well in in the states. Um, yeah. So each before Roll to Me went bonkers at pop radio. There was a song called Kisses and Goodbye on on Waking Hours, which got quite a bit of quite a bit of radio play, and then Always the Last Note got quite a bit of radio play. So we were kind of we were we were sort of doing all right at radio in in the in the early nineties, but we didn't expect to have a pop hit. That was. That wasn't in our plan and it wasn't in AM, the record label's plan at all. The record was so fast and so short that the radio stations loved it because they could stick it on before the news. Um so <laughs> that's that's really that's one of the main reasons why it climbed up the, the pop charts. And one of the main reasons why a a rock band like Delamitia ended up on CHR radio, which is not somewhere that we would have expected to have been. Well, and I have to ask, so the song always the last to know, it was eight on the track listing out of 12 songs on the Change Everything record. And then when I looked at Twisted from 95, the Roll To Me's on, Roll To Me was the seventh track out of 12. Usually you're going to put the hits around maybe position two, three, or four. Did you not know these songs were hits when you wrote them? Were they just other songs in the bunch? Um, Not really. And also... A&M was a very artist-friendly label with a very sort of understanding A&R department. So if we wanted to sequence an album purely because of the flow of the tracks worked, then the record company weren't going to stick their foot down and say, you need to put the, you know, the first single up front. Um, and in return for that understanding, we, we didn't make much of an argument about what the singles were. It was up to them to choose what the singles were. But... I mean, we all, we knew that on every record there were two or three things that were that were radio friendly enough to get played in the radio, but we never knew anything was was going to be a, was going to be a hit. I mean, we thought about not putting "Roll to, Roll to Me" on "Twisted" because "Twisted" was was kind of a grunge influenced album, and "Roll to Me" being the sort of pure pop that it is, we thought it stuck out like a sore thumb. So we only really ended up putting it on the record because it worked coming after a really long kind of grungy. It's like this Sonic Youthy track called Being Somebody Else. So it really ended up in the record just purely for uh, sequencing reasons, not because we thought it was it was it was going to be a hit. I mean, if we if we thought it was going to be a hit, we wouldn't have mixed it like that. I mean, we we mixed it with the, yeah. the drums and the, the bass in one channel and the vocals and guitars in the other channel. I can't remember, but it's it's got one of those radical sort of George Martin '60s stereo mixes, which we had to um, which we had to fix when it started getting played in the radio because we we discovered pretty quickly <laughs> that an awful lot of radio stations are only broadcasting the left side or the right side. So you'd be driving along, yes. along the freeway between radio stations on promo tours. They go, oh, ladies and gentlemen, or no, no, ladies and gentlemen, they went, and this Scottish band are coming in later this afternoon and we're going to play their their song, Roll to Me, and they play it. And all you would hear, sometimes there'd be no vocals and sometimes there, <laughs> there would be all vocals and, you know, and drums or something. It was really bizarre. 
I am so glad that you addressed this because I called my producer last night. I'm going, Chris, I'm freaking out. I'm like looking on YouTube. We're looking on Spotify. Sometimes it's in stereo. Sometimes it sounds like it's in mono, like an old, like you said, old George Martin recording yeah. where the vocals are panned right, yeah. the guitars are panned, and the drums are panned hard left. So I'm glad that you addressed that. I went ahead and uh, we're, we're going to talk about the stereo mix yeah. today. Yeah, fine. <laughs> I can't remember what, what exactly is on says but it's it's pretty radical it wasn't just roll to me i went back in your catalog there's a lot of other songs that you had had done like that well the guy that produced our first album uh hugh jones you know he's he started in studios in the late 60s and he had a big thing about about panning uh where sometimes there was nothing wrong with panning a whole load of stuff hard hard left and a whole load of stuff hard right i mean it's very dangerous when it comes to broadcast because you you just don't know what kind of phasing problems broadcasters have and you don't and you never know whether they're broadcasting both channels and they never know yeah. and, and you know unless unless it's the bbc where they've got like a team of highly paid technicians all of these radio stations are run on pretty basic budgets and you know they don't they don't have an engineer on call to check every day that they're actually broadcasting what they think they're broadcasting anyway <laughs> i digress no you're you're, you're absolutely right you're, you're making me laugh because you're, it's so true uh something else i wanted to talk about your second album waking hours that came out in 89 yeah and that was your first uh, on a&m uh previously yeah. you had been on chrysalis but you're, you're on a&m after that but that album waking hours and 1992's change everything both those albums were mixed by one of my favorite producers, uh, an Englishman named Gil Norton, yeah. and then I noticed I noticed for Twisted, and and again, you had a lot of success with those records in the UK. You changed uh, to a gentleman named Al Clay. He's yeah. worked with Hans Zimmer, Frank Black, the Boo Radleys, Pink, Adam Lambert, etc. Why the change to, to Al Clay for this record? Well, what, what happened a lot with us was we would start working with a producer, and then once we kind of knew what we were doing in the studio sort of around about 87 by about 87 we sort of knew what we were doing so when we hired Hugh Jones to produce the first three tracks on Waking Hours I say initially when we made Waking Hours we hired a, a guy called David Kirschenbaum who produced a whole version of the album that we threw away because it was so awful <laughs> then we hired Hugh Jones to do uh, who'd done the first album as I say to do three tracks and even though they were good we wanted everything to be a bit looser uh, so we got talking to his engineer and then we hired his engineer. And that, that's kind of what happened with Al Clay because Al Clay had worked for Gil Norton and we'd worked with him on, I think, I think on a one-off single called Spit in the Rain. So we tended to work with producers and then find that working with established, like proper producers, so people that really get into the nuts and bolts of everything, we found that a little bit limiting because we didn't, sometimes we didn't want to sound that smooth or something. So yeah, so we, we were we were sort of constantly looking for the right combination of somebody that could record as well, look at, look at the structures a bit, but not sort of overdo it. So that's why we ended up with Al Clay because we thought he was, we just thought he was easier to work with than, uh, than Gil. I mean, Gil's a, a, a brilliant producer, 
but he's not the easiest man in the world to work with. He's he's uh, he's very 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 opinionated, and he he likes to win arguments, you know, which is not kind of the way we, we work, you know. So I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> I heard he's. I mean, he's brilliant. I love I love Gil as a man, and I think he's a brilliant producer. But we 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 found it. It was just a bit too dictatorial for us. I mean, that being said, he completely rearranged Always the Last to Know, and it wouldn't have been a hit in the, in Europe if he, if he hadn't done that. So I'm eternally grateful for him uh, for doing that. You know, I mean, I mean, even though he's worked with all these sort of legendary alternative rock bands, I mean, if you listen to those Pixies records, they're produced in a way that makes them much more accessible than they would have been without that sort of production. Oh yeah, I always think of Gil Norton as a sort of classic pop producer you know he's he's you know they're they're very toppy there's lots of hooks on gil norton's productions you know i listened to ocean rain the um which was kind of his, his first big big record the engineer but i think he did quite a lot of production work on it and that that's still an extraordinary record that um echo in the bunny men's ocean rain Well, Roll To Me, once again, is from your fourth album, Twisted, which was released in February of 1995, and Roll To Me, the single, was released June 26, my parents' anniversary, wedding anniversary, <laughs> June 26, 1995. I'm impressed you know your parents' anniversary. I don't even know my own anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Roll To Me, uh, again, we talked about number seven out of 12 on the record, and you know the next song in length to that because this song is two minutes and 12 seconds, the shortest <laughs> song on the record. The next one's 338. Most songs are four and a half, five, and you have one song that's six minutes and 36 seconds on the record. So I'm amazed that a song 212, you know, usually the, the typical pop radio standards around three minutes. Yeah. This song, there is no fat on this at all. The reason it's so short is because it's 142 BPM. It's deceptively fast. So that's why it's so short. I mean, it's got everything's in there. It's got four verses. It's got two middle eights. It's got a very short instrumental. So it shouldn't be that short. It's just so fast. Yeah, it, it's a short one, but man, it is a full song, as you said. And what an earworm. You know, Justin, I typically listen to the songs when I'm, you know, researching them 30, 40 times. And I just, of course, I know this song. I've heard it a million times. I can't get it out of my head. It's just one of those songs. Once it's in there, it's just what a, what an earworm. The song's two minutes and 12 seconds. The intro is a single hit on a kick drum and a cymbal crash with a single note of bass and a guitar chord that rings out for two bars. Then there's a nice little drum fill that takes us into four bars of drums, bass, and is that a 12-string acoustic panned off left? Yeah, the, the riffs all played on a 12-string acoustic, which we borrowed off um, the guy that owned the studio we were in. Yeah, I, in fact, I play, even though I'm not a guitar player, I played all that and I dropped in nearly every note on a on an, uh, Elisa Seda because it was, I, I had the melody in my head, but I couldn't play it. 
And I to sort of detune the guitar to try and find a way of playing it easily. I mean, even good guitar players have great difficulty playing that, that riff. So I basically dropped in every every bloody note on it. <laughs> no kidding. Why? Well, it sounded like a twelve string, and what a beautiful sound! It, yeah, it was awesome. A, it was a. I think it was an old Martin. It was a beautiful guitar. Well, then it sounds like there's a hook melody that's center that also sounds like a twelve string playing the main the main riff. Uh, I'm not sure what that would be. There's a bit of electric guitar in there, which sort of confuses the issue. But the yeah, the, the the riff is all twelve string. Um, okay. So that but there's yeah, there's a bit of jangly electric guitar that Ian played that kind of that kind of holds it all together. I believe that's panned off right. I said another jangly guitar panned off yeah, right. So I think yeah. that, I think that's the electric that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Well, again, right off the top, uh, catchy as all get out, and then we set up for verse one. Oh, well, this is probably one of the most meaningless songs I've, I've ever written, so this could, might be tough, but on you go. Read me the note, I'll make something up. <laughs> Perfect. I love meaningless songs that are massive hits. This is going to be good. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Because, hey, I, I've written so many meaningless songs in my life, Justin, but I've never had a huge hit. So, hey, good on you. <laughs> Look around your world, pretty baby. Is it everything you hoped it'd be? The wrong guy, the wrong situation. The right time? To roll to me, roll to me. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to be tough. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I usually write lyrics and melody roughly the same time, but I think with this, I was desperate to write a Paul McCartney esque thing where the melody covers a big range of notes, which I don't normally do. I normally write much more in that sort of Dylan Lennon mode, where you're you're really within about four notes, uh, and you might occasionally sing something a fifth above that or something. So there's pretty much a, a new chord on every word. So there's a new chord yes. on, on, on every sort of syllable and a half. So um, I think I would have filled in the words after I had the melody. I can't remember specifically, but I was I was pleased that the, that the melody was McCartney-esque enough that I wasn't that worried about the words. I mean, I still find that Pretty Baby really unbelievably clawing and also there's no space at all in the verses it's just there's like one a one beat break between all the lines which is not songwriting it's just uh it's just a rush of blood to the head so that's that goes against the grain with me as a as a writer because sometimes it's the well a lot of the time it's the gaps you leave that actually contain they contain the meaning a wee bit so this drives me mad, and it's also hellish to sing, especially at my age now, because there's nowhere to get a breath at all. I was going to say, and I've talked about that on this show before, Justin, yeah. where it's like you write this song, and you think it's the greatest thing in the world, and you go play it live and go, uh-oh, as a vocalist. Yeah, You're like, absolutely. where the hell am I going to breathe? <laughs> well, we didn't we didn't think this was the greatest thing alive, but what, what we found amusing about this song was we thought it harked back a bit to the first album that we did on Chrysalis, which is very acoustic-driven, uh, lots of acoustic guitar melody, and lots of words in a in a furious hot heap, as my cousin once said. So that's what we found amusing about it, even though it, it really didn't fit into what we were doing at the time, where we were trying to be a kind of grungy rock band with pop tunes. Um, I mean, you know, that 
when we were making this album in 94, uh, we were in the studio when Kurt Cobain died. And I, I'd been, you know, I'd been listening to Nirvana for a few years by that point and was, I mean, not obsessed with them, but, you know, Nirvana were the real deal for me. I mean, I, I really hated grunge, but I absolutely adored Nirvana because they were, they were putting together punk chords with rock drumming and, uh, and kind of sort of beatily Lenin-y harmonies, you know, and really great tunes and really spooky fucking lyrics. So Roll to me was the exact opposite to what we were listening to at the time. You know, we were listening to Swerve Driver and, you know, Mud Honey and Ian was listening to kind of like Southern rock stuff. So it was, it was a complete anomaly, this song. And that's partly why we kind of, we had a, a bit of affection for it because we thought this is going to be light relief on quite a dark sort of record in terms of sonic colours. And we thought this record will actually... It'll just inject some some brightness in, in the middle of quite a morose sort of record. So that's kind of why we that's kind of why we, we we stuck up for it. We I don't think we stuck up for it because we thought it'd be a hit. And if we had thought it was going to be a, a hit, we might have we might have thought about not putting it on the record and putting it on another record. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't really it didn't really do as much good in terms of selling albums or selling tickets because it was all on pop radio. It wasn't on it wasn't on you know adult contemporary or, or college radio or alternative rock radio it was on pop radio and nobody knew who we were the people who listen to pop radio don't go to their local bar to see a you know a touring right. scottish rock band i thought you were a new band in 95 being from the states you yeah know? i think yeah. that was the perception of probably most people yeah so i mean it, it made us a lot of money but it didn't actually it didn't really break us in the way that people over here in the uk thought it had because they thought oh you've had a top 10 record on, on billboard you know you must be playing arena so like, no we're playing they're playing with 300 people a night you know and nobody you know those people know who we are because they've you know they probably heard us in college radio in the late 80s but uh nobody that's this that he has rolled to me on on pop radio has a clue has a clue who we are right or, or what we do you know Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with lots more with Justin Curry after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I sometimes feel when we're together, baby, everything has turned out wrong. And I know you... And now, back to the show. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Southern rock leanings because I hear that in here. Definitely yeah. in the verses. There's something about this and it makes me chuckle a little bit, you guys being from Glasgow, that, that I hear that. There's a lot of, lot of stuff going on here. I also could make the argument, I think, that at the end of all these verses, because we don't get a traditional chorus in this song, no. I, think, I think the roll to me's that happen at each end of the verses are almost like a chorus in and of themselves. That's the hook. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not very good at writing choruses. I can write middle eights, but I find choruses very difficult. I never quite know what to do on choruses. So a lot of my choruses tend to be 
the Dylan chorus where the title is just the playoff at the end of the verse. And that, that functions as a very short chorus. Exactly. That's what I'm saying here. And we get harmonies on the first yeah. to roll to me, which are kind of centered or maybe panned off a little bit. But the second roll to me is panned off pretty hard to the left, which I think is really cool. And I love the production here, even though it's not the original idea of, of completely having stuff panned. But we get that 12-string acoustic, which is panned off left. Bass and drums in this verse is kind of going along. And then when the verse turns around, it's a four-bar re-intro. And it sounds almost like an overdub symbol, like you're... Like like the, the ride yeah. symbol, like on the bell. Yeah, I think we did overdub that. That was a trick we learned from Hugh Jones, which he stole from Penny Lane, where you overdub the, you close mic the bell of a ride symbol and you do it as an overdub so you can stick it really high in the mix and it's got a really, it's just got a really atmospheric feel about it. The drummer on this was was a session drummer called Chris Sharrock, who's still one of the best drummers in the world. He, he played on the last There She Goes. He used to play in a band called The Ice School Works when he was when he was a really young man. And he's played with I mean tons of people. And he's got an incredible 60s feel, which is somewhat halfway between Keith Moon and Ringo Starr and maybe with a bit of John Bonham or something. But so he's 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 neither one thing nor the other. So he's got a bit of swing like Ringo Starr but he's also got a quite a heavy quite a heavy solid feel like um like Keith Moon or, or maybe maybe John Bonner maybe that's that's a bad example maybe Ginger Baker so he's got a really amazing combination of uh of sort of sixties feels, which just really works for this kind of music. Yeah, no, I definitely hear the 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 Ringo and the Ginger Baker in this. And yeah. what a feet what a feel he has. Well I love that bell. It's panned slightly left and then we get into uh verse two. Look into your heart, pretty baby. Is it aching with some nameless need? Is there something wrong and you can't put your finger on it? Right then roll to me. And I'm going to read these lyrics and have you talk a little bit about these if, if you can. And you're and you're laughing again. <laughs> no, because no, I completely obfuscated on the first verse because it's it's, it's, it's it's so it's just such an obvious kind of um, the, these lyrics fall into a very specific category of pop song, which is you know from you know the nineteen I guess the twenties onwards. You know, I'm in love with you. You're not happy with your um, with your partner. I can I can make you a better offer. That's a really standard trope in pop music. So once you decide you're in that mode, it's it's sort of a case of joining the dots. So, <laughs> well, did you did you write this about somebody specific? Is it no, coming from personal? No, I don't think it did. I, I I don't think it did. I would I would be honest with you if if it was a a really autobiographical thing. I literally just fitted the lyrics to the melody. Um, that yeah. was that was the only thing that matters. So the, the the melody takes precedence over the lyrics, which is not the the usual way around for what what I do. I tend to sacrifice melody for the for getting some intelligence into the lyrics. Whereas in this this was the other way around. The lyrics are as dumb as possible just to keep that melody clear um, and make the melody really clear. I'm so glad you said that. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, this melody is so strong. It's so catchy that, I, I, dare I say, you could have sang uh, the telephone book, but y you really almost could have here. And, and, and 
I wouldn't have known. You could have told me, yeah, I wrote this about my ex. She broke my heart or I was trying to win somebody back. But no, it's that's it, it was it was just uh, I know I know what tro- pop trope I'm in. I just need to fill in the fill in the syllables. And because it's so fast, um, I'm sure I'd have, I'd have gone back to sort of re-edit it and try and improve the lyrics. But because it's so fast and as I say, there's a chord on every word, it, it was almost impossible to uh uh, to get anything in there without sacrificing the the way the melody scans and the melody itself, so I, I just had to stick with uh, what pretty much what I originally wrote. I don't remember doing much rewriting at all on this. Do you recall demoing the song? Yeah, I demoed it at home on on my own, uh, and I remember playing it. To, I had a, a girlfriend from New York at the time that was over in Scotland, and she heard it and she went, "Ah, that's really different from." From everything you're doing at the moment, that that's quite interesting. So she was the first person to to go. That's got something special about it because I, for me, it was pretty throwaway, and it, it's quite a common thing that that people's most throwaway songs end up being very successful in in some fashion or other, either in a film or on radio or something, or, yeah. or they get used or they get used as a, as a theme tune or something. Um, so there's nothing wrong with writing throwaway songs. Just don't throw them away. Yeah, well, something I never talked about on the show was the girlfriend gauge. I can't tell you how many how many times the girlfriend's like, "That's the song." You're like, "What? That's that's the throwaway song." What do you what do you what do you hear here? But whether you want to expound on verse two or not, Justin, I'm going to read them for the listeners. Yeah, and look into your heart, pretty baby. Is it aching with some nameless need? Is there something wrong and you can't put your finger on it? Right then, roll to me. And on roll to me, we get uh, another harmony. I, I quite like aching with some nameless need. That's got a lot of good internal rhyming in it. So that that's the first line I can sing with any real sort of passion because it's I quite like that line. The, the first verse is just so obvious and straight down straight down the line. And there's a couple of things in the middle eight that are, that have got a wee bit of a wee bit of darkness in them. And aching with some nameless need's got a bit of darkness in it, you know. So yeah. I, I I'd have been quite pleased with that at the time. I think. What I like about line two and three here is they're both asking a question. Yeah. And I feel times in songwriting when you when you ask questions, it, it makes people think. And I guess that could be good or bad. But I, yeah. I like what it, I like what what it's asking here. After this verse, we get into a two bar reintro. But this is slightly different. The progression and the riff changes a bit here yeah. before we before we get into what I'm calling bridge number one. Yeah, I, we call it a middle eight, but you guys call it a bridge. Either or, either or. And I don't think I have ever seen a soul so in despair. So if you want to talk the night through, guess who will be there? So and I don't think I have ever seen a soul so in despair. So if you want to talk the night through, Guess who will be there? Yeah, and 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 this could all almost be argued that it happens twice. This is kind of like a chorus as well. It's so catchy, but I love the minor chords here and how it really yeah. it, the whole mood kind of goes a little dark from how poppy these verses were. And there's a lot going on here. But uh, talk talk a little bit about these lyrics. This is where it gets a bit more interesting, as you see. It goes, to, it changes to a sort of surprising minor chord at the, at the beginning of the bridge, as, as you're calling them. Again, a very beatly thing to do. I, I probably stole this pretty directly from the, the Lennon middle eight and we can work it out where it goes from major to minor. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and 
so that would be would have been my thinking there. Also, I wrote this in Dagdad, and I'd only just learned a new a new minor chord in Dagdad, and that was that was the one I used at the start of the the middle eight. But yeah, I remember being really pleased with the, with the chord sequence in the middle eight because it's kind of a descending chord sequence from the minor. And I remember yes. thinking, I remember thinking that's quite good. So I, I think when I wrote that bit, I'd have thought, oh, maybe this song is is not a complete dog, you know. Um, but as you as you pointed out before the at the end of the second verse and before that that bridge, there's a little turnaround where the chords are, are slightly different, and that's what yes. makes songs that the songs of this because they, they all songs of this work. Because they've got so many chords and they work on a sort of weird internal logic, they're really hard to learn. So I, I, I've, I've done this song with other bands before, where the other bands go, "Oh, will you get them to do a version of Roll to Me and we'll play it?" And they always, they always make a right mess of it. I can tell you right now because when I picked up the guitar, I always go through the songs on here. There's some, there's some changes in here that are yeah. different. That I, that I immediately thought of how many bar bands screw this up. Yeah, and there's not really any way of. Of simplifying it because to get into the middle eight, you need that funny little, uh, funny wee turnaround. And actually, to be honest, when we, because we played it to death in the mid nineties when it was running up the charts, we were doing, you know, we were doing so many gigs and promo things and acoustic shows and radio things, uh, and we never found the right way to play it. Again, partly because the twelve string riff was all dropped together in a really funny tuning, so it's almost impossible to to play the riff. Without really going around the house and changing tunings and things, so when we yeah. when we did our comeback tour in 2014, and we thought we've got to play "Roll to Me" because it's we've, we're doing a sort of great set, so we've got to play it. Uh, and we rehearsed for 13 days straight, and we only really got it together on the 12th or 13th day. <laughs> so it's an absolute dog to play, an absolute dog. I mean, we still quite enjoy doing it because it's, it is such a a challenge, you know. But and isn't yeah. that funny? Because you have other songs that just seem so, so much more entailed than this, and this is yeah. the one that gives gives you the headache. It's re- really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, there's some cool things going on here in this middle eight. The guitar is still panned off left. Bass and drums are here, and an organ comes in, yeah. almost like a B a B three on this part. I yeah. love that. On the first line and the second line, we get harmonies, but not on the back two because on the back two we get these ooh. Yeah. backing vocals on line three and four and at the very end there's a backing vocal when you say we'll be there there's a there air air that comes i also love that the tambourine single hits and castanets come in here again this is just all beatles it's just all all stuff that we learned from beatles records and reading mark lewis from the beatles complete recording years and working with guys like hugh jones and gil Norton, especially Hugh Jones, who really understood how the, those Beatles records were constructed. Uh, yeah. And percussion's so vital in Beatles records, and it's also really loud. So when we when we were mixing this with Bob Clearmountain, and we had to kind of ask Bob Clearmountain to mix in a way that he wasn't really used to, so in a very dry, in a very dry way. And then when we asked him to do the Beatles panning, he was, he was totally up for it, actually. Um, but also, just turn the percussion up. It's got to be deafening, because it's got to have... It's just going to have real impact. It's not part of the kit. It's 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 kind of part of the the lead riff, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, the castanets. That was our, that was our friend Dave McCluskey from a band called the Bluebells that came in and he played the castanets by virtue of being the only person we knew who had a pair of castanets. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's not like that common of common of an instrument. Why I I love the placement here. Uh, the tambourine is on the word have in the first line. Castanets come after the word seen. The second line it's on despair, and after despair the castanets come in. I just love the placement where you have it here. And I have to ask, I, I hear obviously the organ in this part. Yeah. I don't hear the organ in anywhere else in the song. No, I mean we did, we didn't want any keyboards in the song, but there was yeah. a, but there was a slight. There was just a bit of a sonic gap between the the acoustic uh, and the electric. We thought there was something that could that could sort of fill that that space, and we wanted something. We were, I think, we were trying to go for a vox continentally sort of sound, but we didn't. I don't think we had one, so we would have we'd have aped it on a a Roland sort of Hammond copy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we this is one of these songs again because it was so redolent of what we did in the first album when we didn't have a keyboard player. I mean, there's, there's hardly, there's a bit of piano, a bit of organ in the first album, but everything, everything's done on guitars in the first album. So, yeah, we didn't really hear a place for electric piano or a clavinet or anything. So, I guess just to give Andy Austin, our keyboard player, a goal, we thought, oh, you can play in the middle eight. <laughs> We're gonna throw you a bone here, pal. Yeah, Here's where exactly. you get to play. Yeah, you can come behind. You can come behind the stage curtain for for <laughs> eight bars here. Um, I I love that though. I love that this whole section. It's just a completely different mood. And after those backing vocals come in, the there air air, we get into verse three. So don't try to deny it, pretty baby. You've been down so long you can hardly see. When the engine stall and it won't stop raining, it's the right time to roll to me. Roll to me. Roll to me. So don't try to deny it, pretty baby. You've been down so long you can hardly see. When the engine stalled and it won't stop raining, it's the right time to roll to me. Roll to me. Roll to me. On the first roll to me, we get that centered harmony. The second and third roll to me is they're panned off left on bar two and four. Uh, and I say bar two and four because the main riff after the first roll to me, that guitar hook, it comes back, but it changes again here for eight bars. I love it. Yeah, I think I just, because I was playing that part and I'm not a guitar player, I was trying to sort of make it a solo but just keep it in the same mode as as the riff. So I just I ended up just alternating the melody, but like just modulating it up up on the third phase or, or something. I think um, again, which is sort of really, I just I was desperately trying to stay in that Beatles mode. Uh, I mean, if you if you think of everything prior to maybe Abbey Road and certainly prior to Sergeant Pepper, the lead guitar playing is very thematic. It's not kind of it's not virtuoso ostentation it's not showing off it's not jazzy it's very thematic and it's very melodic because what i could have done with that instrumental section is just ask one of the two guitar players to play a solo but i I just didn't feel that was right i just wanted to stay in that um that really heavily structured melodic mode so yeah i just i just modulated up the the middle bit to make it to make it mildly more interesting and just make it more difficult for the guitar player when he had to play it live (laughs) well i I kind of feel in some ways you're 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 kind of downplaying this song i'm telling you what appears to be this simple little pop song there's a lot here it's not you know as as you said you you've how many bands have you heard that have just (laughs) they butcher this because there is these little turnarounds that little part you do here is what you're calling the solo it's great it is fiendishly complicated, but it doesn't because it's all based on tunes. It doesn't sound to your 
to your ear, like it's it's overwrought or ridiculously complicated, ridiculously complicated, which is that can only be a good thing. I mean, we've we've thrown many a song away, which just feels you have to overwork the the, the changes and the turnarounds to get it to sort of structurally hang together. Whereas this one, there's a good musical reason every time there's a slight a slightly different sequence. You know, there's there was there was something in my in my head telling me, no, this makes sense melodically and it's not going to jar on the ear i'll tell you what i like when the second middle eight comes in here or bridge number two as we call it it's the same lyric and music as the first time that it happens was there ever a thought hey maybe we got to change this one up or or was it always the same Normally, when we would hit this stage of the song, we would bring in a new element. We'd bring in maybe piano or something. Yes. Or like a high Hammond or something like that. But again, this is just harking back to the Beatles. Quite a lot of Beatles songs have two middle eights, either side of a chorus or either side of an instrumental. So you get a middle eight, instrumental, repeated middle eight. And they were always the same. They were, they were always the, the same words. And the same arrangement. So that's kind of why we stuck to that. We didn't feel like it had to, that it had to go anywhere else. Um, so yes, we're just sort of religiously following what the Beatles, what the Beatles did. <laughs> well, I'm assuming you did this to two inch tape. This wasn't to Pro Tools yeah. in 95, no, 94. No, no, all, all so, yeah. And, and, you know, this second middle eight almost sounds identical. I'm wondering if Bob Clear Mountain, it sounds like the organ is maybe a dB, dB and a half louder or something. And maybe even one of the guitars, one of the jangly guitars seems a little bit louder. Other than that, it's pretty much a carbon copy of the first time. Uh, yeah, as I remember, it's exactly, certainly exactly the same arrangement. Yeah, I mean, Bob's a very clever dude. He may well have, he may, may well have poked something up. Um, yeah, okay. To get, okay. To get you know, to, to so it feels like the song's progressing. But again, we didn't feel the necessity to bring anything else in because we were only like a minute and a half into the song at this point. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's crazy. And coming right out of this second middle eight, we go into verse four, which is essentially uh, an outro of the song. So look around your world, pretty baby. Is it everything you hoped it to be? The wrong guy. The right time to roll to me The right time to roll to me The right time to roll to me So look around your world, pretty baby. Is it everything you hoped it'd be? The wrong guy, the wrong situation. The right time to roll to me. The right time to roll to me. The right time to roll to me. And then we get an ooh vocal. (laughs) A lush lush harmony vocal on the oohs there. On the first two lines here, it's just kick snare. And that 12-string acoustic panned off left. After the second line, the bass comes back in here on line two. The bass gets kind of funky here. I like it. And here's the part that's great. And again, I would bet when you get up with bands, this is the part they mess up. Yeah, 
Yes, yeah, when we get to <laughs> when we get to the three roll to me's here at the end, it's a very strange, but these cool little hiccups that are happening. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool turnaround on these three lines, and it it took me probably you know again I've heard this song numerous times, but when I sat down to analyze it, that's when it hit me like, okay, what's going on here? It's really cool. Yeah, it's a tricky little thing that makes it made total sense to me when I was writing the song. Uh, especially in Dagdad for some reason. But I do remember when I was playing the bass to it with, with our drummer, that being tricky in terms of where do we put the kick drum and do we leave a gap and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and again, that's something that Chris Sharrett really sorted out. So the part that Chris Sharrett nailed really, really works there because we you could have overworked that little, hit those little hiccups and done some kind of stop beats uh, and it would have just been too clever. Chris managed to find a way of sort of playing through it and getting a, and getting a fill in at the end. I think so. Um, yeah, thanks to Chris Sharrock on that one. It's awesome. And for the listeners, you mentioned it again. You mentioned Dadgad and yeah. Dadgad. He was saying he he writes in Dadgad. Uh, typically, a standard guitar is tuned E A D G B back to the high E. Uh, in this instance, the low string is tuned to D instead of E. So that that's what he's referencing there. And, and the top, top two strings go down a tone as well. The top E goes down to a D and the B goes down to an E. That turnaround there, that's just so cool. And right at the last roll to me, the band stops and they ring out and that's when those oohs come in. Yeah. And then again here, it's like the drum fill comes in and then it's like, one and a half bars it's not like a full two bars it's a weird thing at the end and then the band ends together ringing out bass guitars and cymbals on the fade out the last few seconds it almost sounds like an airplane swirling right and left it is an airplane i was it is because i i i used to by this stage i recorded all my own vocals in in uh, the bedroom of whatever um, residential rehearsals sorry, residential recording studio we were in. So I would let the producer or engineer get on with recording band overdubs and I would do vocals. It made things a lot quicker and I would do my own vocal comps and we would just take them off an ADAT and stick them stick them back onto the two inch. But my bedroom faced the front of the building and we were in the middle of Lincolnshire and there's a lot of US Army bases in, in Lincolnshire. So um, there would have been a jet taking off from one of those army bases, or sorry, uh, <laughs> air force air force bases, I should say, and we just kept it in because we just it just sounded really nice in the headphones. That is so awesome. I I thought it was something you overdubbed for sure. That I didn't I didn't think that it's, was just on a it, on a it's, take. It's on the vocal track, so we just kept it. That is great. That is that is <laughs> that's really that's really cool. It's those little accidents that happen sometimes we leave yeah. in that makes that makes it special. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, th- this song is great, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to break it down. And I got to tell you, uh, you have a new song, relatively new, from 2021. Uh, it's called You Can't Go Back. I checked that out, and I checked out the video, which is a parody of the original video, Roll yeah. To Me. It is awesome. So for the <laughs> listeners, check that out. It's so cool. And what do you got coming up with with, uh, with the band? What's going on? Uh, well, we've got a live DVD coming out of a, a show we did at Glasgow Bar. Land Ballroom. So we're doing a little uh, showing of that in uh, the local art house theatre here in December. And then we're off to Australia in February and we're hoping to be back to the States in the summer. Well, much continued success, Justin, and thank you so much for sitting in today. I really appreciate it. Chris, thank you so much for your incredibly 
specific and detailed analysis. That was that was a pleasure. You can't go I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Justin Curry and man, Delamitri is a really good band. That song you were just hearing is their 2021 single, You Can't Go Back, which is the one Chris just mentioned with the music video that was kind of a parody of Roll To Me. So go check that out and dive into their whole back catalog if you're not familiar with it, because I'm pretty confident you're going to find a lot of songs that you like. Listen, we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but don't go anywhere. There's lots more Chris to Makes a Podcast after the break. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com. As we near the end of the show... Here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Upchuck, a five-piece band from Atlanta, Georgia, formed from connections made in skateboarding, construction, and teenage delinquency. The band consists of Mike on lead guitar, Hoff on rhythm guitar, Armando on bass, Chris on drums, and KT on vocals. Here's a snippet of their song, Our Skin. And Chris. There's nothing wrong with writing a throwaway song. Just don't throw it away. I thought that was an amazing quote and what good advice. And you know, Justin kind of thought of this song as almost a throwaway song. Imagine if he would have thrown away this giant hit. I know. It's it's so crazy. And and his girlfriend, she was someone that talked a little sensitive, said, No, there's there's something really really special here. But yeah, the song really stuck out to me. Like I said, it was, you know, buried seventh on the record. It's two minutes and twelve seconds. But to Justin's point, you know, the song is peppy. It's moving. There's they they packed in a lot in two minutes and twelve seconds. I never really thought about how fast the song is it is a a fast song everything about it is the melody's fast the music is and i also never really thought about how beatly this is in a way like with 90s production but elements of those early beatles songs i mean the the melodies everything he compared Compared the melody to being he was trying to write like a Paul McCartney melody where he hits a lot of notes. I thought that was interesting because I never 
put that together, but now I'm like, yeah, obviously. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I loved learning about the history of the band because, again, they were formed in 80. Sounds like they were just kind of kicking around as a pub band, you know, playing in the bars in, in Scotland. Uh, first record came out in 85 on a major, but they were releasing albums pretty infrequently, 85, 89, 92, and then 95. But, you know, as I said to Justin, this they sounded to me like they were a brand new band. I had not heard of them. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I had heard of them. I heard the song, I uh, Always the Last to Know. I didn't know it was them. But when they came out, this song just uh, is so 90s sounding to me. It doesn't sound like they'd have a 15-year history as a band. And I think that, you know, kind of goes to show where their influences were. They were writing from a place that they weren't trying to trend hop. It just so happened this song sounds 90. But yeah, there is a lot of pop Beatles elements in this, especially in those bridge parts. And he touched on the song being on pop radio. And he kind of talked about how that didn't really translate necessarily to live. Yeah, they were making money because the song was huge, but it didn't necessarily translate the way that it would if it was a band that was huge on rock or college radio or something Mm -hmm. at that moment. And dude, I can speak from honest experience. I was a 14, 15 year old kid at this time and I was too cool for anything on the radio, especially pop radio. But now I look back at this song, I'm like, I love this song. This song's amazing. And it just goes to show that things don't always translate. If just because you're huge at radio doesn't mean, you know, whatever. But this band is obviously huge otherwise. I mean, like you said, they sold six million albums. They've had like 10 hits in the UK. But uh, to some of us who don't know a lot about them, they're that band that sings Roll to Me, which. Once again, I do love this song. Well, yeah, and I, I've had to explain people with our, my, my career for Less Than Jake. You know, we'll play to a festival wherever, somewhere in Europe, and it'll just be like 50,000 people losing their minds. And, you know, and logic would dictate the next time we come back that, oh, hey, there was 50,000 people there. We should sell out a 1,500-seat venue. And, you know, there's like 600 people there that night, which is still good. We'll go out, have a great show. But you're like, whoa, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. And radio's definitely like that. And and here's the band that had been around for 15 years, had enormous success in the UK, come over to the States. Those first tours, he said, were just sleeping on floors. They weren't making any money at all. To be honest, I was a little bit nervous about this one just because I had read a few places that they were kind of like not crazy about the song or something. And he did communicate a little bit of that, especially when he started reading the lyrics. He was like, <laughs> he's like, these lyrics don't mean anything, but... What I did think was really cool and I love is he said the melody takes precedence over the lyrics. He was saying like the lyrics are as dumb as possible to keep the melody what it is. The melody is what's important. And Chris, I love great lyrics. Don't get me wrong, but I'm a melody guy. Mm -hmm. I love a great melody and you could take away whatever meaning you want from the lyrics that are there just because he put something in there to secure that melody in there doesn't mean that you can't take a meaning away from it well that's true and he even said it was really difficult when he got out to start singing this song there there is no breaths in it as a singer the line is there something wrong and then later in the song when the engine stalled like he's spitting that out he could almost almost not get get that lyric out and that's the charm of this song and the charm of that melody i'm I'm glad he brought that up that's that was important because we don't address that too much it's usually you know we're reading the lyrics we're really dissecting them and getting into it but sometimes the lyric is secondary and I think that's this song and it was funny too that he brought it up before you even brought it up you and I going crazy (laughs) calling each other trying to figure out like 
what's going on here? There's like different mixes of this song. There's a mono mix. There's a stereo mix. Which one should we talk about? Of course, we went with the stereo mix. But uh, it's funny how he told that story about the song getting played on the radio with the other mix. And they'd be like, oh, here's Delamitri. And you d- weren't hearing things. Uh-huh. You weren't either. Either the whole vocal was missing. It depended on, I guess, what side would come through. But I've had that happen before where I was playing music through a PA and whatever. If it was a song that was mixed like that, if for one reason or another, I'm like, why am I not hearing the bass in this song? Why does this sound so weird? You know? Yeah. And a lot of times you'll be at uh, the barber shop or you, you'll be in an elevator or something and their, their PA system is in mono and Van Halen and ACDC come to mind. You know, Eddie's guitar on those early Van Halen records was always panned hard right, you know, so or hard left, one of the two. And so you'd be listening in mono. And you're like, wait a second. I, I can hear the bass. I can hear the drums. Where's the guitar? And then finally the guitar will come in later, later, you know, when, when stereos come in or something but I, I always i always marveled at that and yeah we, you and i last time sitting here going what is going on and, and and justin even said they finally had to do a stereo mix for for pop radio for radio and chris i was glad hopefully not the last but our first scottish guest krista makes a podcast we are going worldwide baby i hope so and speaking of going worldwide you can help us go worldwide by going over to chrisdemakes.com and joining our supporting cast which is pretty much our version of patreon you can uh, join for the low price of five dollars or ten dollars a month you know kind of like buying chris and i a beer or a cup of coffee and uh, yeah help us out you get bonus episodes of the after party and you're supporting the podcast you know and love they call me Mr. Worldwide, actually. They do? No. Who's they? No, no, that that that's Pitbull, actually. <laughs> they call Pitbull Mr. Worldwide. We gotta get Pitbull on the show, maybe. There you go. Anyway, yes, the Chris Makes a Podcast supporting cast at ChrisMakes.com is an awesome way to support this show if you love what we're doing. And uh, we really appreciate it. And even if you don't, which I hope you do, but even if you don't, just spreading the word, telling your friends, telling your family, anyone you know who loves music. Letting them know about the podcast, that goes a long way. And it seriously, I know we always say this stuff at the end of the podcast, but it really means a lot to us because we love doing this. Absolutely. Thanks to each and every one of you listeners for spreading the word about the show. Without you, we couldn't do this and we wouldn't do this. So thank you so much. If you haven't already, please join the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group with over 4,500 members and counting. It's a great place to interact before the show, during the show, after the show, or whenever. So uh, head over there and please join if you haven't. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I want to thank this week's guest, Justin Curry, for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. Do you enjoy the content and production of Krista Makes a Podcast? Do you have an idea for a podcast or an existing podcast that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have over 25 years of combined experience in the pod field, and we're ready to help you succeed in the golden era of podcasting. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas, and we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.